0: Information discussed in this podcast may be sensitive in nature to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Molly Datillo could run her heart out every day and not get tired of it. She loved running so much. In fact, she was offered a scholarship to attend Eastern Kentucky University. Not too awful far from her home in Madison, Indiana, Molly was thrilled to head off to college and keep running. But running wasn't Molly's only hobby she enjoyed, she was also a notable singer. In fact, her dream was to go to an American Idol audition, something she was planning on putting in motion that summer of 2004. Molly went to Indianapolis that summer to take some courses at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis, and was living in an apartment near campus. On July 6th of that year, Molly was planning on going to Wendy's to apply for a job. She went and did some shopping for her upcoming nephew's birthday, and she would make a phone call to a friend from a payphone at 11 o'clock that night. Molly DiTillo would not be seen or heard from again. Where is Molly DiTillo? everyone and welcome back to the Where Are They podcast. We've seen a lot of growth lately, so if you are new here, thank you so much for listening to these stories. The goal is to tell these stories of the missing, the ones without a voice. There are some stories of missing college students, especially girls, young women, that we are familiar with. Maura Murray and Lauren Spearer, are a couple of examples, but are you familiar with Molly Dottillo's story? Molly's case made a little bit of headline news, but not much, and her case is also responsible for some big changes in legislation in Indiana and other states as well. Before we jump into Molly's story, I want to welcome our newest Patreon members, Tara from Miami, Florida, Sean B., and Alexis W., Thank you guys for supporting the show, our charities, and our mission. This episode today is also sponsored by Davey Piper and Movement and Meals. Remember, supporting our sponsors also helps our mission. Now let's jump into the story of Molly DiTillo. Who was Molly DiTillo? Molly Datilla was born on June 13, 1982. She would be the youngest of nine children in her family. She grew up in Madison, Indiana, and learned early on there were a couple of things that she not only really enjoyed doing, but she happened to be very good at. The first was singing. Molly was always singing and even took private voice lessons. Those that knew her and heard her sing said she was very talented. In fact, in 2004, the year she would go missing, she had planned to attend an American Idol audition. This had been a longtime dream of hers, and she was so excited to finally attend an audition later that summer. Even as a college student, Molly continued to take private voice lessons and work hard to get better. And that was a trait that Molly took with her in everything she did. Hard work and determination. Molly's other hobby was running, competitive running. Molly had been named in the top 10 of high school runners for the entire state of Indiana for all four years of her high school career. She also went on to earn herself an athletic scholarship to Eastern Kentucky University and ran for four years for EKU. Molly was well-known in the running community also. She was very supportive and she was that sociable girl, the one that wanted to help everyone, support everyone, and just really a very nice and likable girl. Friends would come forward later and say she was the kind of girl that never let anyone eat alone in the cafeteria at school. If she saw a new student or someone eating by themselves, she would go over and eat lunch with them. After her four years at Eastern Kentucky, Molly wasn't quite ready for graduation yet and decided to take some summer classes at the Indiana University, Purdue University, which is known as IUPUI. This university is located in downtown Indianapolis and offers classes and degrees from both Indiana University and Purdue University, a very unique setup, really. Molly would move in with her brother in the Westlake apartment complex, which was located on the west side of Indianapolis, about five miles to the college. Molly did have a car, so getting around wasn't a problem. And the Westlake apartments had a fair amount of young people living there. And with Molly being a social butterfly, it was an easy adjustment and a great fit for her. She made friends easily and she loved to just hang out and be with her people. On Tuesday, July 6, 2004, Molly attended her classes as normal that day. That afternoon, she went out and did some shopping, looking specifically for a present for her little nephew's birthday, which was in a couple of weeks. And she wanted to drop off some job applications. A little later into the evening, around 7 p.m., Molly decided to walk to a Wendy's fast food restaurant. This Wendy's was about a half a mile from her apartment. And she just wanted to go drop off a job application. While walking or possibly even at Wendy's, Molly ran into her brother's friend. They chatted for a minute and then Molly left heading back to her apartment. She would then go to the apartment of one of her friends when she got back. And there were several people there just hanging out. Nothing unusual for a group of college students. Molly began talking to a young man by the name of John Shelton. John convinced her to let him take her out for a boat ride on one of the small ponds that was located on the property of this apartment complex. And it just so happened that John had the hookup as his brother, Benji, was a maintenance worker there at the apartments. So Benji was able to help John get the boat. The boat had been locked up in a shed. And Benji had access to it. So John and Molly went out for a little boat ride. Afterwards, they went to a Taco Bell for a quick bite to eat. When they left Taco Bell, however, they didn't go back to the apartments. In fact, for some reason, they drove past the apartment and drove a couple of miles in the other direction. And no one is quite sure why or where else they may have been going that night. But it was around 11 p.m. when Molly asked John to stop at a Thornton's gas station. Molly went over to use a payphone to call up one of her friends. Molly did have a cell phone, but she didn't have it with her. And there's a ton of speculation about why that is. But it really could be so many things. First, It was 2004. Cell phones were around, of course, but they weren't smartphones in the sense that they are now. And people didn't always carry them everywhere they went. Second, she had been out and about all day. Maybe her phone had needed charging. And third, maybe she just left thinking she would only be gone a few minutes and she'd get her phone later, or maybe she just even forgot it. But just a couple miles from her apartment complex, Molly felt the need to stop and use a payphone to call this friend. Later, when the friend did come forward about this call, she said that she did get this call from Molly. It was 11 p.m., but before Molly could really say anything or she could, the line had been disconnected. At the time, she just thought they got cut off and nothing really seemed too out of the ordinary. This was really the last known communication or attempt at communication from Molly Detillo On July 8, 2004, two days later, Molly's brother was starting to panic. Remember they shared an apartment together at this Westlake apartment complex, and they often went a day or two without seeing each other. They were both young adults. They were siblings. But he realized that they were now approaching day three. And not only that, but All of her belongings were still sitting untouched in the apartment, meaning Molly hadn't come back at all. Her cell phone, her ATM card, and her ID were still sitting in the same place. Her car had also remained at the apartment parking lot unmoved. Now, it was not too unusual for Molly to disappear for a day or two. She was always hanging out with friends. She's 23, she was in college. And her brother himself came and went quite often. They could have just been missing each other. So I don't think him not noticing anything for the first day or two is that unusual. But as he put the pieces together, though, realizing that he hadn't seen her at all, that she left her phone and ID behind and her car was still sitting in the same place, he really began to worry. He tried talking to some other friends and once he realized no one has seen her, he called the police to report her missing. Before we jump into the search that would take place for Molly DiTillo, let's have a quick word from our sponsor, Davy Piper. Have you heard of Davy Piper yet? If y'all are looking for the perfect fitting sports bras, leggings, undies, I have found it. Davy Piper is a women's essentials and intimates clothing company, and their products are made with premium, super soft fabrics, including bamboo and organic cotton. And Davy Piper really prides themselves on what they can offer women of all ages and body types. Their fabrics are comfortable, and their products are made to actually fit your body and still be supportive. I also love how fashionable all their clothing is. I know all women out there have had to sacrifice fashion at one point or another just to find something that fit, but everything at Davy Piper is super cute. So what all does Davy Piper offer? Wireless supportive bras and sports bras. They have premium undies, leggings, which are my favorite clothing item in the world, pajamas, tops and tees. They even have dresses. I have spent so much time and money and energy searching for the perfect workout gear, something that is comfortable but still stays in place when I'm running. And I'm so thrilled to have found Davy Piper. They also have the most perfect comfortable type of clothing for lounging around. Check them out for yourselves at davypiper.com and just look at all their cute stuff. That's d a v y p i p e r.com. And you can save 20% on your purchase when you use our discount code WAT20. WAT stands for Where Are They? Make it a little easier to remember. That's WAT20 for 20% off at davypiper.com. The police in Indianapolis took the call that day from Molly's brother, but they really didn't do anything. In fact, when questioned later about their slow reaction to looking for Molly, one detective simply stated, quote, it just isn't a priority, end quote. So there you have it. Molly disappeared into thin air, but it's not a priority. Law enforcement honestly believed that this 23-year-old girl who was a very social college student was likely just off with friends somewhere. And of course, that would be fine. At 23, she can go wherever she pleases. It's also summertime. She's kind of living on her own. She certainly doesn't have to tell her brother every time she goes somewhere or does something. Even though her family and closest friends kept telling investigators that there was no way Molly would just disappear on her own without telling them, their pleas for help continued to fall on deaf ears. There would be no immediate search for Molly DiTillo. What continued to raise red flags for family and friends was that all of Molly's activity completely stopped on July 6th. She was a very good student, yet she stopped going to classes. Completed job applications sat untouched in the backseat of her car, as did a birthday present she had just bought for her nephew. Her ATM card sat in her apartment, her bank account still holding a considerable amount of money, with no transactions being recorded after July 6th. But still, there was no official search right away. In fact, her family would say it was well over 30 days after she was reported missing that any attempt at searching even started. Remember, it just wasn't a priority. Eventually, police do start to retrace Molly's steps on the day of July 6th, They learn that she went to class, that she went shopping, that she applied for jobs, that she went to her friend's apartment, that she went boating with John, and then to Taco Bell for a late night dinner with John. And at first, that's all they know. They believe that that's where her activity stops, and initial news media reports that. It wouldn't be till later that they would learn of the phone call from the gas station that happened around 11 p.m. that night. It was the friend that came forward and said that she did get a call from Molly. She didn't know exactly where Molly was, but she did get a call from Molly around 11 p.m. Police were able to trace that call, and that's how they learned it happened from a Thornton's gas station. So they go speak to John Shelton, the last known person to be with Molly on that day. And while they don't ever release the full details of that conversation to the public... They come away from that talk with a new outlook on Molly's case. Now they had questions and the answers they were getting were not making a lot of sense. They turn up the search and they concentrate in the area of the Westlake apartments. They do search the pond where John and Molly took a boat ride that day. And I actually checked Google Maps, which does show a couple of ponds. And I really hope they searched both. They also follow her route to Wendy's that evening, and they focus a lot of search efforts in that area. And Molly's case finally makes the local TV news stations. Finally. By all accounts, Molly's life seemed pretty typical on that day. School, shopping, friends. But then a new friend enters the picture. John Shelton. And people have since come forward to talk about What a shady character he was and bad news. We don't know a whole lot about any relationship that Molly might have had with him prior. We believe she met him at this friend's apartment. He was kind of a friend of a friend and they just started talking and hanging out that day. Molly was super sociable and a very trusting person so none of her actions seemed unusual. A quick criminal background check I'm John Shelton, shows a lot of trouble with the law. In fact, several felony charges throughout the years, beginning in 1994 with a felony theft charge. From there, we have OVIs, resisting law enforcement, intimidation, driving under lifetime suspension, more theft charges, and finally a drug charge that has him in prison through the year 2038. Seems like a career criminal. And we know he was the last person with Molly that day. But something during law enforcement's questioning really caused them to believe that John knew a lot more than he was saying. As for what we know about those conversations, we being the public, we only know that John admitted to being with Molly that day and evening. He even admitted he drove her to the payphone that night but then he claims he took her home afterwards. For some reason, detectives don't believe him. But the story doesn't really just end there with John Shelton, because John isn't the only person that has been pointed out here as a person of interest. His father, Edward Shelton, has also been named. Again, we don't know the exact connection here in how John's father was ultimately implicated, but he was. Some working theories from law enforcement is that John strangled Molly and Edward helped get rid of the body. We don't know much in the way of any physical or forensic evidence, and John and Edward have never been charged criminally, so it's likely the authorities don't have much. But I'm certain they have more than they have told us, and that's okay. Sometimes the more information we have on an unsolved case, the more the public can help with generating leads and tips to law enforcement. But not always. There are times when detectives need to protect the information they have. The Detillo family is also convinced that John and Edward Shelton are responsible for something happening to Molly. In December of 2005, Molly's father passed away, never knowing what happened to his youngest daughter. Family members said he was sick near the end, but he was still working the searches for Molly, and he had been preparing another one before he died. Relatives said he died of grief not knowing where Molly was and what happened to her. The family continued to voice dissatisfaction with the reaction from law enforcement on Molly's disappearance or should I say their lack thereof in fact her family went to her apartment one week after Molly was reported missing and police hadn't even been there yet and police wouldn't interview friends and neighbors at the apartment complex for one full year after Molly vanished one of Molly's cousins, Carrie, was a reporter in Los Angeles at the time. She couldn't believe the lack of response and flew to Indianapolis to see what she could do. The family began making media rounds and started working with state lawmakers to change the way missing person cases are handled. They even worked with Project Jason for some time and if you recall, based on our coverage of the Jason Jolkowski case, Project Jason is the organization set up by Jason Jolkowski's mother after he went missing. In 2007, after a lengthy process and a legal fight for change, Molly's Law was passed. The Molly DeTillo law requires law enforcement to accept missing persons reports immediately and identifies those as high risk. The law also offers annual missing persons training for police departments. While this initially happened in and for Indiana, legislation similar to Molly DeTillo's law is being enacted. All over the country. In fact, Molly's cousin, Amy, has also continued to work to get the law passed in other states, including her home state of Arizona. It's really a great way to keep Molly's name out there and to try and help other families. No one should ever have to go through what the Dotillos did. And if the tragic thing happens, a loved one goes missing, you want the help of authorities immediately. In addition to the work for Molly's Law, her family also helps with an annual 5K that is done in Molly's honor. That is really the perfect way to honor this young woman who loved to run and loved to support others in the running community herself. This race still takes place in Madison, Indiana, where Molly grew up. The family has never ended their search for Molly, their search for justice, and their hope for answers someday. In fact, both John Shelton and his father, Edward, would end up in court for Molly's case. Before we talk about the events of that trial and the shocking outcome, let's have a word from our other sponsor today, Movement and Meals. What's the number one reason people fail at their health and weight loss goals? They give up. Finding that motivation sometimes to keep going is the hardest part. For me, it's the daily decision-making, planning ahead. It's just exhausting. Plus, it's hard to think outside the box and come up with some new and different ideas instead of always having the same things over and over for dinner. This is where movement and meals comes in. Movement and meals is a daily newsletter that provides you with an equipment free workout that you can do at home or at the gym, as well as a recipe for a home cooked dinner every weekday, all sent to your inbox every morning, no decisions, except maybe who has to do the dishes. Every weekday morning, you'll receive your email with your workout of the day and your delicious dinner recipe for that night with all the ingredients included. And, Because I know you're wondering, every Saturday morning, you'll receive an email with your shopping list for the next week's recipes so you can get stocked up and have everything you need on hand. You can try Movement and Meals for free for two weeks at movementandmeals.substack.com. I will have the link for you in our show notes. And after your two-week free trial, it's just $7 a month. That's $0.35 a day to outsource your healthy decision-making and free up your mental energy. Again, that's movementandmeals.substack.com. It costs nothing to give it a try, and it might just keep you consistent and on track in your health and wellness journey this year. In 2010, the Dottillo family won a $3.5 million judgment against John Shelton and his father, alleging that the two men were involved in Dottillo's disappearance. More information came out during that civil suit to kind of shed some light on what might have been happening. It was learned that there was vomit found in Shelton's car. theory is that Molly was strangled inside the car, causing her to vomit. And then both John and Edward together got rid of Molly's body. The Dottillo family actually won that judgment by default because neither John nor Edward came forward to defend themselves in that lawsuit, which is interesting because John Shelton at that time was an inmate at a state prison in Plainfield during this lawsuit. Edward Shelton, however, was unable to be located. He was MIA. Edward and John were never charged criminally, there is a whole different threshold for being found negligent in a civil trial than there would be to find them guilty in a criminal trial. The total amount of $3.5 million was split. The judgment includes about $1.7 million for lost earnings and pain and suffering and another $1.7 million in punitive damages. The family knows they will never see a dime of that money, but that wasn't their goal. Their goal was to hold them responsible for Molly's disappearance and likely her death. In 2014, John Shelton was out of prison, but don't worry. He would end up back behind bars where he is there now and will remain until 2038. But for a short time, he was free. and During that time, the local Fox News station went to interview him. He was living with his girlfriend at the time, and they actually agreed to speak to them, but not on camera. The news crews had to turn off their cameras and were not allowed to record them. He continued to proclaim his innocence to the reporters, saying that, quote, I was the only person dumb enough to admit that I was with Molly that night, end quote. John is implying that because he did admit he was with Molly that night, that's the reason police are focused in on him. In 2017, a judge would declare Molly legally deceased with her date of disappearance, July 6, 2004, being her date of death. And it's a step that the family believed was necessary to help them cope and to help them get some sense of closure.
1: I never imagined that it'd be 13 years and we still really have no idea where her body is. You just kind of know, I mean, in your heart that you may never have it resolved. Molly, an avid runner, was a student at EKU back then. She was home for the summer in Indiana taking classes when she disappeared without a trace. You just want some closure because we do feel like she's been deceased, I mean, probably really soon after she disappeared just this week her eight siblings and mother signed the order declaring that molly the baby of the family was indeed dead the thing is we felt like she'd been deceased for quite a while celestra dewey says this order was more a formality than anything else she says over the years her family has worked to maintain their sanity and have dealt with molly's disappearance in many different ways my mom still takes us out for ice cream on her birthday, and we tell our favorite Molly stories. But Dewey says 13 years later, they're trying to hold on to hope. They want to bring Molly home, and most of all, they want to bring the person or persons responsible to justice. This is just one more step to kind of close that you know, chapter in our lives.
0: As with many unsolved cases, there are always unanswered questions that leave us wondering. Let's talk about some things in this case that make me wonder. And I have a lot of questions, but let's touch on the main ones. Question number one. What was the intention of the call to the friend from the payphone? Here is what I wonder. Why? Did John and Molly leave Taco Bell that night, drive past her apartment, and then stop at a gas station to make a call from a payphone? Why not just stop at her apartment if she wanted to call her friend? Why did they pass it up? What was her reason for calling? Did she possibly need help? Or was it an innocent enough call? And why did the phone line disconnect? Was she not supposed to be making a call and John or someone else disconnected the line when they found her on the phone? There is absolutely no evidence that proves why the call was made or what the intention was, but it seems odd to me. She was just a couple miles from her apartment where her cell phone was and likely a landline phone since it was 2004. Why not just stop there? I just feel like there is more to that part of the story. Question number two, how exactly did Edward become implicated? Clearly he was enough to even be found guilty in the civil suit. And my thought is that he knew he was guilty, or at least that the evidence was overwhelming against him because he never even showed up to court to fight it. In fact, where is Edward today? And I'm really left wanting more information on Edward Shelton. As for theories, there is really just one main theory in this case, but still we don't know what exactly happened to Molly or where she is. You'd think by this point, some 18 years later, someone would have come forward with something. And if it's just John and Edward that know something, it's interesting that neither one of them has given up Any information either. John is in prison until 2038. Doesn't seem like he'd have a whole lot to lose at this point. There is still a missing girl out there who needs to be found and brought home properly. It has been way too long. And I really want to give a big thank you to Molly's family for working so hard to get Molly's law in place and help other families when a loved one goes missing. It's very possible someone out there knows something, and it's very possible there is still a tip out there that can break this case wide open. In 2004, Molly was described as a Caucasian female about five foot tall and weighing around 100 pounds. She has brown hair, hazel green eyes, and either wears contact lenses or glasses. It's believed that she was wearing a pink tie-dyed shirt on July 6th when she was last seen. The tip of Molly's left thumb and the nail on that thumb are slightly deformed due to a childhood accident. She also has a dime-sized brown birthmark on the outside of her right elbow. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Molly DiTillo, please contact the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department at 812-265-2648 or the Madison Police Department at 812-265-3347 or the Marion County Sheriff's Department at 317-231-8154. I want to thank you all for listening to Molly's story today. Her case received some attention in 2004, but never to the level that it should have. Perhaps that would have put the pressure on the right people to come forward. Keep sharing her story. The answers are out there. If you have any case suggestions for me, please reach out on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links are always in the show notes, or you can send me an email at canwefindthem at gmail.com. A big thank you again to Davy Piper and Movement and Meals for sponsoring this episode. Both links will be shared on social media and in the notes as well. Everyone is invited to join us over on Patreon. Welcome again to our newest Patreon members, Alexis, Sean, and Tara. Join us over there for more cases and more discussion. Our charity focus of the month this month is Texas EquiSearch. Joining us over at Patreon and also proceeds from our merch store will be going to Texas EquiSearch this month. We will be back again next week with another Unsolved Missing Person episode. And until then, stay safe and hug your loved ones.